you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us now, my friend, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, Chief of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. I say my friend, even though we've not met in person, because we've certainly gotten to know each other over the course of these two years with her weekly visits on AirTalk. Dr. Schreiner, great to have you with us again. It's nice to be with you too, Larry. So let's start first of all. Uh, let me just ask you about this, you know, people getting together again um, in the waning days of Omicron and your thoughts about that. I don't know if you've had that experience yet, but it's powerful. It is. And yes, I have. And I think we have to take advantage of any lull that we might have with this thing. I think we are going to have some other upticks in uh, the virus. We can see it's happening a little bit in Europe right now. Hard to know how the uh, Ukrainian tragedy is going to uh, affect that. But I think we need to be prepared that this is not the swan song of SARS-CoV-2. So I think when we have an opportunity like this where there's very low virus in the community, uh, we know what to do. We know in certain circumstances you may still want to choose to wear a mask, but outdoors is a great place to get together where you can enjoy the Southern California sunshine. And I think what you were doing is perfectly safe and it's very restorative for people. So I'm a, a big supporter of making, you know, informed decisions about taking some risks. And if you're going to an event where you know everybody is required to show proof of full vaccination, that's that, at least for my peace of mind, that makes a, a huge difference uh, as as well. And I just want to specify our event coming up Sunday at the ACE, even though there is no mandate for indoor masking in the city of L.A. anymore, we are requiring it Sunday at the ACE. So we, we um, except those of us on stage, and even we, when we're in the green room and whatnot, will be masked, but on stage we won't. But we're asking everyone in attendance uh, beyond showing your proof of vaccination to please wear your mask for for that event since it is uh, indoors. Dr. Schreiner, your your thoughts about indoor events at 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 this point? Um, I have to say for myself, I I wouldn't be comfortable, you know, without the event requiring masks indoors. Yeah, I think that that's still a reasonable thing to consider. I attended the uh, Van Gogh immersion uh, exhibit yesterday in Hollywood, which is fabulous, and uh, they were terrific. They looked for vaccination before you came in. Everything was well-spaced, clearly well-ventilated, but everybody had masks on. And I think that, you know, until we kind of get more comfortable with 
mingling with people we don't know uh, in public places or and being indoors. I think for right now, if people choose to wear a mask, that's that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, and we hope that everybody's respectful of that. So I think that it's important that we we just pay attention to that and and move forward. All right. Well, we have the news that um, the heads of Pfizer and Moderna are both seeking the FDA's um, recommendation and approval for a second booster shot for Americans 65 and older. The idea being that they are uh, more at risk from COVID-19 for having severe symptoms and that as the antibody coverage from a booster shot fades over time, that that would be beneficial for them to get a second mRNA booster. What do you think of that? And Dr. Schreiner, what will the FDA be looking at before deciding whether to recommend that or not? Well, you're absolutely right. I think that um, what they're looking at right now, they're waiting for some final data to come out of Israel. Most of this has been looked at. The Israelis have always been sort of ahead of the game when it comes to evaluating uh, vaccinations and boosters and so forth. And their data seemed to show that uh, individuals over 60 that received a second booster, in other words, a fourth shot, uh, had less infection. And that's, uh, that's sort of an important piece to this whole booster idea is that we know that the three-shot series is very protective against serious illness and death. We certainly saw that during the last Omicron surge. Uh, by adding the booster uh, a few months later, that may actually decrease the risk of infection. In other words, the actual process of acquiring SARS-CoV-2 in your nasal passages. Uh, and that's something that they're looking at. It also, of course, is also going to protect them from serious illness and death. And so individuals over 65 who are at higher risk for uh, a, a poor outcome in that situation um, may benefit from a fourth booster. It is important to remember that um, the adaptive part of the immune system is still able to respond. Those are the cells that make antibodies. And we can see that even months and months after the last uh, booster shot, uh, if you look at the individual cells that make antibodies, they do a very good job of it. Uh, but they may not, that kind of immunity may not protect you against actual infection. And so um, uh, that's kind of what they're looking at. The booster might uh, be tweaked a little bit to um, kind of address the Omicron variant issues. We have this BA2 variant, sort of the family of Omicron that's out there circulating. And so I know Pfizer's looking at that. I'm sure Moderna will, will also look at that. And so it's really fine-tuning our, our vaccine technology. Uh, the data on whether or not everyone should get a fourth booster is not clear yet, and the Israelis are looking at that as well, and I'm, I think Pfizer and Moderna are look, you know, waiting to see that. But certainly we see that they're already recommending and, and looking for EUA approval uh, for uh, vaccinating people over uh, 65 with a fourth shot. And I think that's to be expected. We'll have to see how long you know, we can go before we have to have that uh, in everybody. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, be surprised if by the you know late summer or fall that pretty much everybody would be getting a booster. And I'd be interested, you know, because I think we're fairly close in age, uh, not not quite 65 yet. But um, y you work in a high risk setting where you're dealing with patients with COVID. And and is this something that that you've done or considering for yourself getting an additional booster? Yeah, I haven't done it yet. Um, I'd sort of like to see the data, but I don't think that there'd be any harm in doing it. I, I had a pretty 
robust uh, reaction to the, the third booster, but I'm willing to go through that again to, you know, to create a better protective sort of shield, if you will. I certainly am going to recommend it for my 91-year-old mom, and uh, who's otherwise healthy, but you know she's 91. So I think that's really where we're going to see a lot of this is in in our folks that are. Uh, older than you and I are, Larry, um, but um, also being offered to people that are sort of on the cusp who may be in a high-risk situation if they're taking care of patients with COVID. Time for you to ask your questions. Huntington Hospital Chief of Infectious Disease and Prevention, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. We're at 866-893-KPECC or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org, 866-893-5722 or atcomments at kpecc.org. If you email us or if you tweet at AirTalk, please include your first name and your location. We appreciate that very much. Uh, Merck's COVID-19 pill given to people who uh, have tested positive or just starting to show symptoms of COVID-19 is apparently being used um, more, at least comparably, to that of Pfizer's. And the Pfizer pill was shown to be uh, significantly more effective in clinical trials. This apparently because of a shortage of that that Pfizer manufactured drug. Dr. Schreiner, what, what have you seen at your hospital in being able to provide these medications to patients? Well, um, well molnupiravir is the Merck pill, uh, EIDD two one zero eight was its original number, um, and it looked terrific at the very beginning. Uh, you know, it was looking like it might even be seventy five or eighty percent. But then a, a much better trial was done, and the um, efficacy of that medication dropped to thirty percent. Um, it's probably somewhere in between. It does appear to be a very effective antiviral. It stops viral replication. Sort of does it similar to some of the HIV medications, uh, the nucleotide analogs. It, it stops the ap- actual replication process. The concern about the molnupiravir medication is that it's very mutagenic. In other words, it causes a terminal mutation in the virus, but there's been some concern that it also could uh, pose some risk to pregnant women or to individuals, male or female, who intend on getting uh, having a child. So uh, there's a limitation in terms of its use. So the use, the, the contraindications and the efficacy for molnupiravir may be a couple of strikes against it. But it does appear to be a tool that we can use uh, in very early COVID. And remember, that's where these medications have to be used uh, you know, shortly after diagnosis. Paxlovid, which is the Pfizer medication, has a much, much higher efficacy rate. It also is a similar drug to some of the ones we've used in HIV. It's a protease inhibitor. Uh, it doesn't seem to have the uh, birth uh, the birth defect issue that molnupiravir might have, not been proven, but might have with molnupiravir. Paxlovid seems to be a little safer in that department, and it's much, much higher efficacy, around 85% or so. But it isn't as abundant as we would like. The Biden administration has talked about and is going to attempt, I believe, to really flood the market with Paxlovid, but it hasn't happened yet, and I think there's just some manufacturing issues in that department. So um, both of the medications are another tool in our toolbox to deal with COVID. Again, they have to be used very early. So if we have good testing where you test, you do a home test, let's say it's positive, you call your physician, you say, I'm feeling poorly, they start you on either one of these medications as long as you don't have a contraindication to molnupiravir. Uh, It should shorten the course of illness and prevent you from having to go to the hospital. 
All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. And for, for those folks who might be worried as to whether their booster is still providing protection, you know, given what we we heard from the head of, of Pfizer about uh, that people 65 and older should get a second booster, you know, what what do you say to those people who are, who are worried that they're not getting uh, sufficient protection? Well, I, I don't recommend routinely doing antibody tests. Um, I know that a lot of people do that. Some providers do that. We've done a study with that at, at Huntington Hospital, um, but that's more for scientific information. Um, it, it's hard to interpret those tests because, again, as you can see what happened during the Omicron peak, individuals that had been boosted, vaccinated certainly, but also boosted, did far, far better than certainly unvaccinated individuals who, you know, those were the bulk of our admissions to the hospital. And so I think we had real-time performance of how these uh, uh, vaccines work, even months after the last booster. So I think, you know, right now the community transmission is relatively low. I think it's reasonable to wait a little bit to see what the data looks like coming out of Israel. I think it's also very realistic to expect to receive a booster sometime in the next several months perhaps certainly before the wintertime when we gather together in closed places and there could be a, a much more significant surge. So I think people just need to follow the science. Be, you know, you are well covered with the current vaccines and protecting you from serious disease and hospitalization, even many months after the last booster. And we will see what the data shows. And if it needs, we need another shot, then we'll be putting shots in arms. Well, and, and, you know, I, I, you raised a really important point, and I think, you know, looking at cases per 100,000, which sorts of puts your risk of getting COVID into perspective, and I, I can't remember what the late, was it seven per 100,000 in L.A. County, the latest I'm trying to recall. Do you have those numbers, Dr. Schreiner? I think it's, yeah, somewhere around, somewhere between five and seven. So, I mean, that gives you an idea where it's still there and we still need to be mindful of that. But there just isn't anywhere near the, you know, the prevalence of virus that was out there when seemingly everybody was getting Omicron. That's right. We have this whole layer of protection, sort of. You either we had, you know, are fully vaccinated and very well protected. You maybe you never had COVID. I've never had COVID yet. Hopefully, I won't get it. But I'm very well yeah. with my vaccines. Or you had COVID on top of vaccinations. Those people have very high levels of antibodies. So there's a lot of immunity, and that that again is showing the importance of vaccination on a community level, not just on an individual level. And it, but it circles back to the individual because an individual where there's a high degree of community immunity rhymes there, uh, is at much less risk of acquiring COVID and so is much better protected because they're surrounded by people who either have the disease or who are immunized. What do you think is going on in Asia and Europe where we are seeing them having uh, at least a bit of a, a surge and, you know, in some places in Asia, more than a bit? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, probably what's happening in China, they did not have an aggressive program to vaccinate their elderly people. They started first with uh, mostly people in the working uh, age groups. Uh, and so they have sort of some large chunks of population that are not vaccinated. The Chinese vaccines, although are better than you know some, are not great. Uh, their, their performance level compared to Pfizer and Moderna is much, much lower. So there's sort of that issue as well. Um, and finally, they've had very restrictive um, lockdowns that have been great in controlling the disease 
when they need to do it, it's, it's, but it's pretty draconian to do that. And the other piece of doing lockdowns is that then you don't have, you really don't create any natural immunity. I'm not an advocate for letting things kind of rip like the Swedes tried at the very beginning of the pandemic. That was a disaster. But there is something to be said for people mingling and spreading the disease, and it sort of adds, again, a layer of protection. It's not It's a natural way of creating some immunity. And when you do lockdowns all the time, it it does nobody's mingling and you don't you don't get other diseases which is terrific as well we've seen a huge drop in influenza and so forth even strangely diseases like dengue which is a mosquito-borne disease um, during the pandemic but severe lockdowns you kind of don't get that advantage of having some disease circulating hopefully in smaller levels that it won't hurt people but it provides some additional immunity yeah i don't know about you i haven't been sick in two years knock on wood it's yeah, no, it's, I think it's, I think, you know, I used to get colds once a year. I'd always get a cold after I flew on an airplane. I will never not wear a mask on an airplane again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are, are with you on that. I can't imagine flying without a mask at, at this point. We have Gene in Manhattan Beach who emailed us, I'm immunocompromised. I've developed no antibodies even after two vaccines and a booster. Would you recommend a second booster for me or a treatment with Evasheld? That's a great question, Gene, and I'm sure there's plenty of people uh, in the same situation as you. Um, probably at this point, I, I would recommend um, you get Evusheld first uh, because we know that that can give you protection fairly quickly. Uh, and the dose on that has actually changed. It was um, now they've increased it uh, to 600. I think it was 300 initially. Uh, but I would recommend that you get that. It's a little bit tricky to get. You probably should ask your whatever your immune system situation is, your provider that takes care of that, uh, to get that medication. If not, then it might be reasonable to get a booster. What you don't want to do is get the two of them too close together. The hmm. shell may tamp down the effect of the booster. So if you want to get a booster, <clears throat> you can. And you can use, you can, of course, mix things. You can get a Moderna or a Pfizer booster. I don't know. I think I might want to wait a little bit on that one just because they're going to change the formulation a little bit, and it might be good if you're going to get a fourth shot to get that benefit as well. So Evasheld might be the thing to go ahead and get first, and then down the road a couple of weeks after you've had the Evasheld, you can get your booster. Well, and the, the fact that Jean didn't have antibodies, and I don't know how quickly she was tested as to her antibody level after each of those shots or maybe just once. Um, is it possible that, I mean, hypothetically, she, she could be take booster after booster and the immune system just wouldn't respond in any case? Yes, that's that's true, uh, Larry, and it's uh, it's actually more common than you think. Uh, and so there are many diseases that produce that. There's many medications. A lot of the uh, biologic agents that are used in rheumatology and cancer chemotherapy uh, can uh, cause low antibody levels. But there's also people walking around that just have low antibody levels. And so um, that's why uh, having additional tools like Evusheld, which is a combination monoclonal antibody formulation, is a hugely important advance. And of all the monoclonal antibodies, that's the one I think that I have the most confidence in in terms of protecting uh, vulnerable people. Kate in Pasadena, good to have you with us on AirTalk. So I understand at your kid's school, uh, it's private school, they no longer require masks. So what were your child's experiences with that? Uh, my uh, school has been extremely cautious, and I appreciate that. I think it's too soon to pull the indoor masks, so my kids will continue to wear masks indoors and actually outdoors because we want them to be able to see their older grandparents and because they have younger siblings that aren't vaccinated. 
Um, the PUSD schools, who I'm also connected to, I would say half of the people want masks, half of them don't. Um, yeah. Precaution. Yeah. So, uh, and and yesterday with your kids, did did they see most of the students without or with masks? So my children are in pre-K um, and in K. And oh, my daughter, yeah. I would say half of the kids um, are wearing, um, I would say less than half of the kids are wearing masks. In the pre-K, more masks indoors. Outdoors, um, very few masks. All right. Thank you so much, Kate. I appreciate it. 866-893-KPCC. Dr. Schreiner, what's your opinion of making uh, indoor masking optional in schools? Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a tricky situation, Larry. Again, we have relatively low community virus circulating right now. Um, children don't seem to get as sick as they, uh, uh, as adults when they get covid um, but in the absence of vaccination, it does make me nervous uh, for these young people, and that still is being worked out uh, by the pharmaceutical companies as to the proper dose to um, to induce good immunity. Um, you know, if the children are vaccinated, then I think the unmasking is is perfectly fine. But as your as Kate uh, talked about, it's important to think about the other people that those children are exposed to, either unvaccinated younger siblings or older adults who are immunocompromised. And I think for those parents, it's prudent to still be very cautious and to, you know, encourage masking. You know, we're going to be taking masks on and off for the next many, many months, if not years. And so it's something we need to get used to. This isn't the end of the masking situation. And I think training young people to learn how to use them, how to protect themselves uh, is a good idea. And kids are good at it. They're probably better at it than adults. They run around and play and are perfectly happy. I don't see quite as much deleterious effects that people talk about. But, you know, I can understand why people want to have, you know, their children be children and not have to do that. But And there is the advantage in being able to read facial expressions, things like that. Uh, my wife's a speech pathologist, and so, you know, it can be quite challenging to to do that sort of work with, with kids with a mask, although they found you know, the, everybody's had to be creative, so they found some workarounds to that. But um, it's, it, it's just going to be so interesting to see how this affects social behavior as well. But that is, I think, Dr. Schreiner, one of the big takeaways is how well most kids, not all, but most kids adapted to wearing masks. Children are incredibly resilient, and uh, adults could learn a lot from their children's interaction with each other and with their ability to be accepting and tolerant and caring and compassionate. I think that they do a much better job of that uh, in the long run when they don't have, uh, when they have, even when they have good modeling, but if they're um, in situations where they have something that's different, they're very good at adapting to things and under terrible circumstances um, uh, often. And you see kids that are traumatized with, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine right now. They can still see kids playing in the little refugee areas and, and having some fun. And, and so they're very good at kind of compartmentalizing that kind of stuff and, and being adaptable. It is uh, remarkable. John and Marina Del Rey says, now that masking isn't required in schools, is it recommended that we continue doing temperature checks? The temperature check thing has never been very uh, helpful. First of all, people with COVID often don't have temperatures. Sometimes they do, but uh, the vast majority of them don't. And so um, I've never thought that was a very good way to screen people. It's a little bit of theater 
yeah, we did it for a long time at the hospital, and it, the only advantage was it sort of took took people a moment to pause and think, gosh, I do have kind of a scratchy throat. Maybe I shouldn't come to work. Uh, but using temperature as a screening technique has not proven to be very helpful for this disease. All right, 866-893-KPCC. Ted in Santa Monica said, I was shocked Santa Monica put down the mask mandate, but pleasantly surprised. I've seen kids wear masks for two years. Now they're spooked to take them off, but I support the decision. There was a time and a place for masks. That's Ted in Santa Monica, 866-893-KPCC. If you're a parent of a child in a school which dropped its mandatory masking yesterday, what was the experience like for your kids? Did they keep their mask on or choose to go without it? What guidance did you provide them? Juan in Orange County says, I have a daughter in kindergarten. Yesterday was her first day without masks. We asked her to keep her mask on at school because we have younger, unvaccinated kids at home. None of the other kids in her class were wearing masks, which made it difficult for her to want to keep hers on. We don't really know how to handle keeping her mask at school now that it isn't widely required. Yeah, one, that's the thing that I would think would be so hard for kids. If all your friends, your classmates aren't wearing a mask and you're wearing it, you you, you feel like the outsider, Dr. Schreiner. Yeah, that is the that is the thing that I worry about the most as well. I mean, adults even experience that when you're the only masked person in the room. But, you know, I think it's, it's again, children tend to be fairly tolerant of things and maybe more so than adults. Um and I think that, you know, it's, and again, we we all are going to be masked up again at some point. I can guarantee that that will be something that will be reinstituted in the next several months as we move into the fall and winter again. But, um, uh, you know, it's just a, it's one of these situations you can explain to your child why it's important. And I know one would hope that the school would create an environment that was accepting and not um, intolerant of that. And you know, children have many, many other sometimes uh, developmental issues or physical issues that make them different than other kids, and so that can be a problem. Uh, Jackie in Canoga Park says, is it safe for my 85-year-old father to get a series of elective dental surgeries now, or should we wait until a fourth shot is available? I think, you know, again, this is sort of, it's, it's probably would be best if you waited for another shot, but we don't know when that's going to be. It could be now. I mean, you could just get a fourth vaccine of whatever we've got Pfizer or Moderna available. Um, uh, But there is a low level of circulating virus. So again, taking advantage during this lull, um, you know, it probably wouldn't recommend doing it in the middle of a surge. And we don't quite know when that next one could be. Hopefully we'll have a nice long respite from this, but we don't know. So um, I would say now is maybe better. You know, most dental offices take very good precautions. Yeah. They're masked up. Uh, they usually have good ventilation and so forth. So I think it's we don't want to get it some other kind of infectious disease from poor dentition. Well, and, and dentists have had such financial motivation not to have any COVID cases. At least uh, the dentist that I see, man, he's he's on every precaution and all the PPE and uh, air circulation and everything because the stakes financially are really high for those folks. Yes, and they've also been at risk. Uh, several dentists, you know, have have acquired COVID, you know, early on in the pandemic and so forth. So it's important that, you know, that they take the appropriate precautions. 866-893-KPCC. Let's talk with uh, Nicole in Hermosa Beach. Nicole, great to have you with us. I understand you have a kindergartner and they dropped the mask requirement yesterday. So what was the experience? 
he had a really great experience at school yesterday. He was very happy to not wear his mask. Um, He reported to me that his teacher wasn't wearing her mask and he was happy to be able to see her face. And he said that he could hear her better in the classroom. He was also able to hear his classmates better as well. He only had about two other children in his class that were still choosing to wear their masks. But overall, it was a good experience for him. That's nice. And Nicole, did you um, provide any guidance of what you wanted your son to do, or did you leave it to him? Oh, um, I gave guidance to both of my children that we would follow the state directives and the county directives. So I said, you know, they say that we don't need to wear a mask anymore. So we opted to not wear a mask. All right. Always followed their directives. Okay. Thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate it. And Jennifer, with us in Huntington Beach, you have three kids that are in school, I I understand. So uh, how was it for your kids? Yes, I have three kids, uh, second, fifth, and eighth grade at the same school, and they were still, I told them that they still had to wear their mask because it was still strongly recommended. Um, my daughter's second grade class, she was one of only two that kept their mask on. Um, her teacher took hers off as well, as did my son's fifth grade teacher and some of the eighth grade teachers, but other teachers continue to wear their masks. All right. And and for your kids, with them continuing to wear the mask, did they feel at all um, on the outside or did they feel like they were supported to do that? Um, my Some of the kids asked my second grade daughter why she had her mask on, because like I said, only two had theirs on. And she just said that my parents follow scientists, not what random people say. <laughs> well, good for her. All right. <laughs> Touche. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate your being with us. That's that's terrific. Dr. Schreiner, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, and I sure look forward to talking with you soon. And I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully sometime soon. One of these days, Larry. It'd be, be nice. I, I owe you... Um, Far more than lunch, but hopefully we'll be able to do that in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. It's always my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.